a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. Last time, if you were with us, we were in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, which is Samuel's speech to the people as he turned the human leadership of Israel over to King Saul. Then in chapters 13, 14, and 15, we find Saul making a mess out of things time after time. Sometimes it's just outright sin, not taking God seriously, deciding to do things his way instead of God's way. We'll look at some of that today. Sometimes it's just foolishness, just a demonstration of Saul's lack of wisdom, common sense sometimes. Chapter 15 contains some things that can be really difficult for us to understand. We tend to shrink back from it a little bit and maybe want to argue with it a little bit. We'll look at chapter 15 in just a few minutes. We'll circle back to that in a minute. But let's begin by looking at verse 1 of chapter 16. Now remember, at this point in time, Saul's been king long enough to show his true colors. It's clear now Saul's focus is not on the Lord. Saul's focus is on Saul. (laughs) He's not a man after God's own heart. You know who he is, right? We'll find that out later. David. Saul's definitely not that man. He's a man after the people's own heart. God gave him to the people because he knew that's the kind of guy they wanted. He was a man after his own heart. You know, he, he was stuck on himself. And so by the time we get to chapter 16, Saul has blown it really, really badly. So we read in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Saul is failing badly and Samuel is sorrowful about it. I mean, he's grieving over Saul's sin and foolishness and his failure. And that makes sense. I mean, I think that's a good response to Saul. But but God's saying essentially, okay, Samuel, it's time to stop this intense grieving. Saul's messed up. Saul's failed. But just because Saul has failed doesn't mean my work's not going to go on. He's not going to hinder my work. My work will be done. So when God said, fill your horn with oil, it's time to anoint the next king, Samuel realizes, okay, God's not through with me yet. (laughs) God still has a plan, and God's plan will go on in spite of Saul's messing up so badly. You notice the words there, for myself. You see that? For myself. I provided for myself a king. (laughs) I don't think he's reading too much into that to conclude Saul was a king that God provided for the people. He was a man after the people's own heart. David was a king that God provided for himself. God chose David. He wasn't the kind of guy that the people would have chosen. We're going to see that too today. But he he called David a man after God's own heart. David's going to be different. 
Saul and David were both sinners. I mean, David, I'm not trying to say David was perfect. He was a sinner. And we know if you study the life of David, you know he sinned pretty badly, right? Yeah. Uh, Both men sinned terribly against God. That's true of mankind in general, right? We've all sinned terribly against God. We've all got things that are embarrassing in our background. But the difference is the way these two men responded to their own sin. When Saul sinned, what did he do? Well, he justified himself, tried to, rationalized it, explained it away. When David sinned, you know what he did? He was convicted and he repented with deep, sincere, godly repentance. Saul's chief aim was to glorify himself. His life was all about Saul. The chief aim of most people that we know today, probably out there in the world around us. David's chief aim was to glorify God. His life was all about God. The contrast between Saul and David is enormous, and God wants us to see it. Verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. (laughs) And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? First of all, that first part of that verse may sound like fear on the part of Samuel. I'm not sure we ought to read it that way. He just means, how is this going to take place? Because when Saul finds out about it, I'll never make it. <laughs> I mean, he'll find me, he'll intercept me and kill me. Uh, so he won't, be, he won't let me annoy anybody else. And God essentially says to Samuel, Saul doesn't have to know everything. You don't have to tell him everything, everything you're planning to do, everything I've told you to do. Just tell him you're going to offer a sacrifice. That's true. You are going to do that part. But that's the only part you need to tell him. Don't don't worry about telling him everything. Now, this kind of hints to us a, a, a kind of a dilemma that we Christians can struggle with. I mean, obviously, in this case, he's not telling Saul a lie. Although I think we could put it in the category of deception, don't you? I mean, Samuel is keeping some truth from Saul. So he's not telling Saul everything. And that's by God's instruction. But at least this touches on, maybe this is not a great example of, but it touches on a very controversial question having to do with Christian ethics that I think we ought to wrestle with mere just a little bit, just because it reminds me of it, even if we can't reach a totally satisfactory conclusion. And we may wind up disagreeing with each other about some of these things. That's okay, too. I mean, there are many issues that we Christians struggle with that we don't quite come to full agreement on. We just have to try to respect where each other is landing the best we can and do the best we can to see what God's trying to tell us. So I know I have to be very, very careful here. I don't want to give anybody the temptation to rationalize any kind of sin. You know, that would be disastrous. I don't want that to happen. But the question is, is it ever morally acceptable to deceive somebody? Is it ever okay to tell a lie? And I think sometimes our reflex response as Christians is to simply say, no, no, we must always tell the truth. It's never okay to lie. No matter what the consequences are, you must tell the truth. In fact, we remember the ninth commandment. Remember the ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now, most Bible scholars will say, well, that relates especially to bearing false witness in a court that has power to penalize somebody with fines or loss of property or loss of reputation or loss of freedom or loss of life. When you're bearing witness in a court, you better be telling the truth. So that would be a lie designed to hurt somebody else, maybe destroy them, maybe to give us some kind of advantage over others. But Paul also wrote very clearly to the Ephesians. He said, therefore, having put away falsehood, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth 
with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Very clear command here. So obviously telling lies has the potential to do great harm. But if the answer is no, it's never, ever okay to tell a lie, regardless of the circumstances, I think it causes a problem for us. Let me ask you this question, just to try to give you an example to help you think this through. Do you personally believe in the possibility of a just war? I mean, there, I know there's some Christians who are pacifists, and they believe there's never, ever a time you just, if, if the enemy overwhelms you, you just leave it up to God, you don't fight back, and if you die, you die, and if your country goes down, it goes down, but you don't fight. There's, there's some people who feel that way. I don't. Uh, I, I did for a little while when I was very young, and I was trying to figure all this out, but but I abandoned that thought long ago. I believe God expects us at times, the good guys, to resist the bad guys. You see what I'm saying? You, you sometimes have to fight in order to preserve life, in order to preserve freedom. And, and so most of us are there. We believe in a just war. We know that there are times when thugs, maybe international thugs, and demonized enemies of the people and enemies of God, they seize control of whole countries sometimes. And sometimes they threaten the lives of people around them and the freedom of, of, of innocent people. And if we believe that nations like ours should oppose them rather than just surrender to them, which most of us believe that we should oppose them, then we believe in what's called a just war. There's, there are times when we have to fight. Now, that means, and it's very sad, obviously, and it's part of the fallen world we live in, but there's a necessity of killing people sometimes in order to stop an enemy, Right. Obviously, a huge aspect of, of winning a war is being willing to kill people. You don't necessarily do it to kill people, trying to stop the enemy, but it involves killing people. And, and in the same way, a huge part of winning a war is deceiving the enemy. You have to make the enemy believe you're doing, going to do one thing when you're really going to do another thing in order to win battles. You have to be deceptive. You can't have military intelligence what the, about what the enemy's doing without some lies and deceptions going on. You see what I'm saying? So maybe the question, is it ever morally acceptable to tell a lie, is kind of parallel to the question, is it ever morally acceptable to kill people? And if we believe that there are times when justifiable homicide becomes necessary, for example, to stop international thugs, like we've been talking about, murderers and bullies like Hitler or Hirohito, those kind of guys, there must be times also when in order to stop these same guys, it's necessary to deceive them to lie to them. Now, having said that, I don't want to make this sound just easy or simplistic. I don't think it is. I think it's very complex. I think it takes a lot of prayer and thoughtfulness and maybe godly counsel. But I wonder if we could qualify both lying and killing by saying it's never okay to kill someone who has the right to live but in a fallen world, there are times when killing others is necessary because sometimes people forfeit their right to live. Sometimes God approves of the death penalty. Some cases in a just war, some cases when you might be trying to defend yourself or other innocent people around you from murderous thugs who might be loose in our society. In the same way, it's never okay to lie to someone who has a right to the truth. But there seem to me, at least, to be some cases when people give up the right to the truth. When lying, just like killing, might protect innocent people from harm. 
So, for example, if some thugs are trying to kill an innocent child and the child is running from them and they're chasing the child down the block and the child runs by your house and looks at you in panic and runs into your house and the thugs come running up and ask, have you seen a certain little girl here? Did she come into your house? Maybe it's okay to say, no, she went down the street. <laughs> Hide the girl. Protect the girl. I mean, maybe that lies okay. You see what I'm getting at? <laughs> the truth is we actually do see a few examples of what we might call this godly deception in the Bible. In most of these cases, the ones who lie are saving innocent lives. For example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, they lied in order to protect the babies. We're not going to go into all the details here. There's just not enough time, but I'll just mention these quickly. Rahab, remember when Joshua's spies went in to check out uh, Jericho, Rahab lied to protect those guys. Those were God's men. Later on, Michal, David's wife, lied to help David escape from Saul when Saul was murderously trying to kill David. At David's instruction, a man named Hushai lied to Absalom, David's son, to carry out the, God's intention to nullify the council of Ahithophel. Absalom was trying to take over the country in rebellion, and, and, and David told Hushai to lie to protect the nation. Elisha lied to the Syrian army to save his and his servants' lives. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's another one that came to my mind that I didn't add to the list on your screen there, just because maybe it's a little more controversial, but there was a man named Jehu. He was not really a godly man, but he lied in order to kill the worshipers of Baal, and God commended him for that, even though Jehu himself turned out to be a pretty wicked guy. Of course, another time when most people accept that it's okay to lie, and this is kind of trivial, I guess, but when we know that the person we're lying to is going to really appreciate it a short time later. Like maybe you're preparing a surprise party for somebody or a surprise gift of some kind, and you want it to be a surprise, you want it to be revealed at the right time, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, having said all of that, <laughs> let's, let's make sure we keep this balanced, because I believe probably 99.9% .9 of the lies that we're tempted to tell are not godly lies. They're for the purpose of trying to save our face or to make ourselves look good, uh, to avoid consequences for bad behavior. I didn't, a cookie jar, what do you mean? <laughs> to avoid embarrassment, uh, to improve our standing or influence over other people, to hurt somebody else to our advantage, you know, we, make somebody else look bad so we'll look good. On and on you can go of why people tell lies. It's all disgusting. It's all very ungodly and sinful. God says those kind of people wind up in hell. If we just continually justify lying for selfish reasons. Now, be careful here because we're all very capable of rationalizing our lies. We can convince ourselves that we're lying for the well-being of other people when that's just not the truth. And, and now that I've said that, we don't need to lie to ourselves either. You see my point? We can lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that our lives are okay. On and on it goes. So we have to be very, very careful here. I believe one reason a lot of Bible teachers don't like to talk about the things we've been talking about here in the past few minutes is because they're a little bit afraid it's going to give the enemy a foothold in some people's lives and make them feel justified in telling lies. Because I believe what the enemy would love to do with most of us is take these rare exceptions, you know, where if we were to give the truth to somebody who's going to use that truth to hurt other people, somebody we're trying to decide, do I give them the truth when they've got no right to that truth because of their evil intentions? 
And then because there are some exceptions, rare exceptions, Satan will try to use those situations like wedge issues. You know what I mean? Kind of open the door to lying in general to convince us that, well, therefore the truth just doesn't matter that much. Maybe the truth really is just all relative. It's one of Satan's tricks. So watch out. Don't go there. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. Jesus is big on the truth. He is the truth. In John, God calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. God has, says about his word that his word is the word of truth. God calls himself the God of truth. He expects his kids to be people of truth, truth tellers. And yes, there may be some exceptions to that situation, but we must never let the exceptions convince us it's therefore it's okay to deceive others for our own selfish reasons. We can't let, let Satan use a wedge issue like that to convince us it's okay to be a liar and just make excuses because of the situation. Some people get themselves in a big, big mess that way. Some really strongholds of lying built up in their lives. Verse 3. God tells Samuel to invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you see it there on the map, just a little bit south of Jerusalem, about four miles south of Jerusalem there. Saul, by the way, was up at Gibeah, which is just a couple of miles north of Jerusalem, not, not far apart here. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? <laughs> now, when we read that, whoa, 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 why would these guys be trembling because of Samuel showing up? <laughs> Well, I think they're trembling because they're remembering what had just happened and what was recorded for us in chapter 15, which we have skipped over. So let's walk back just for a few minutes and look through that chapter, some of it anyway, briefly to get the background here and see why they're trembling. In chapter 15, verse 3, God gave Samuel explicit instructions to give to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whoa. <laughs> Verses like this one cause a lot of people some great turmoil. And a lot of people will feel justified in becoming God's judge. You know what I mean? God, you've got, wow, can you do such a thing? <laughs> In their, in their minds, in some people's minds, they read a verse like this, and in their mind, they think, that's no better than what ISIS is doing out there. You know, maybe worse, destroy everything. Really, God? Every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every ox, every sheep, every camel, every donkey? Really? Could we at least spare the women and children and the animals? <laughs> you know, that's the way we think, right? But we've got to be really clear about this, and we've got to think a little bit deeper. First of all, this is not just Samuel. This is not just Samuel getting an impression or getting an idea. It's not just Samuel sitting around thinking, these people are so wicked, I think they need to be wiped off the face of the earth. Saul, go wipe them off, exterminate them. That wasn't Samuel. This is not being instigated by a human being who decided in his estimation these people didn't have any right to live. Look back at verse 1 and 2 of this same chapter, chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. He's emphasizing it, isn't he? Thus says the Lord of hosts. 
I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. And God has intentions for this, these people to be destroyed. It's not Samuel's idea. It's God's judgment on the Amalekites. Guys, we got to remember this. God is the one who gives life. He's the only one who can give life. And God is the one who has the right to take it away. And he does. He gives life and he takes away life in his time, in his way. This is not the first time God's done something like this. You remember the flood, don't you? When Noah was saved and his family in the flood, God destroyed women, children, babies, all the animals, except the ones that were in the ark. Later on, Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? God destroyed the whole city, everything in them. Here, here's the deal. God knows who will repent if they were just given more time to repent and who will not. And God knows when it's time for somebody to die. He knows what would happen to that life if they did not die, hypothetically. And he knows what that time is for every single one of us, not just the Amalekites. He knows. But I think one reason verses like this bother us so much is that God chose, in this case, to use human instruments to do the killing. And we say, ooh, really? He's ordering Saul to do it, right? And we might wonder, well, God, if they have to be destroyed, why don't you just do it? Oh, why does Saul have to do it? Won't you send an earthquake or something? You know how to do that. <laughs> and, and he does, of course. I mean, he's done that kind of thing too. But I think what we have to really work at, and this is an example, a verse that's, that makes us realize this, we have to internalize this. Guys, it's, it's a little bit like a three-year-old whose parents take him to the doctor and his daddy and his mommy let the doctor hurt him <laughs> The doctor gives him a shot or the doctor takes blood out of his arm. And that three-year-old cannot understand, why did you do this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me? And we feel that way about the Lord sometimes. We've got to be really careful. We're like the three-year-old. You remember what God reminded Isaiah and then caused Isaiah to write it down to remind us, Isaiah chapter 55? I bet you know this verse. For my thoughts, God said, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. Yeah. There will be many things, guys, in this life. Get ready for this. Maybe you already are ready for it, but hopefully you are. But there are going to be many, many things we do not understand. There are going to be many, many things we'll puzzle over. That's true when you read the Bible. And we'll look at it or we'll look at what's happening in life and we'll say, why? Why, Lord? And we need to remember, God doesn't command us to understand everything. Now, he gives us some hints and clues sometimes in his word. When we dig enough and we think enough and we pray enough, we may get a little glimmer of understanding. But we don't have to understand. He does command us to trust him. So I may not be able to figure out why he's doing what he's doing. But I know I can trust him to be doing what's best and what's right. He knows. He knows. But having said that, even though we might not fully understand what he's doing and we might not ever figure it out, I think it is helpful to think about it just a little bit anyway. We could say, why did God command Saul to do it? And one thought that comes to my mind is this. Maybe God wanted Saul to have this horrific, intimate, close-up look at the consequences of sin, the end result of sin and rebellion against God, how 
how horrible the result is. Death is a horrible thing. Destruction. It's horrific. And he wanted Saul to experience it firsthand and to have a gut level reaction to the horror of sin. Well, anyway, you may remember Saul disobeyed. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So he killed everyone except King Agag. And he killed the inferior animals, but he spared Agag's life and he spared the best of the animals. He did not do what God had commanded him to do. But look what Saul told Samuel in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What? (laughs) He's declaring, okay, Samuel, I've done it. I've done what you told me to do. And Samuel's going to say, oh, no, you haven't, Saul. How can you say such a thing? Look at verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? You didn't obey the voice of the Lord. You remember Saul's excuse? Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. So he's saying, well, Samuel, first of all, it was the people, not me. Don't, don't, I mean, they, they, they talked me into this. And second, they did it to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, Samuel. I mean, we're doing something good here. Don't, don't see the bad side of this. <laughs> it's easy to imagine maybe one of the guys saying something like, man, Saul, it seems a shame to kill all these good animals. Wouldn't it make more sense just to kill the worthless ones? <laughs> I'm, I'm using my imagination here, but I can imagine Saul saying, yeah, I think you're right. It would make more sense. And you know what? We could even sacrifice some of these to the Lord. We'd really be doing something for the Lord to bring glory to the Lord. <laughs> but guys, I know that's in my imagination, but we're very capable of rationalizing sin and coming up with what seems very, very logical, good reasons for doing it. And we'll think, well, I know technically this is sin, but in my circumstances, I think the Lord would be okay with this what Saul was doing. And then there's Agag. Saul didn't try to explain why he spared Agag. My guess is, though, that Saul perceived, hey, Agag is kind of like my counterpart. And if we ever get conquered, I hope that the conquering king would have enough grace to recognize my importance and spare me. So I'll kind of reciprocate and spare Agag. I don't know. I'm speculating here, but it makes makes a little sense. He might have thought that way. In any case, God gave Samuel a classic response. And it's one of the most familiar verses from this book, 1 Samuel. It's the last part of verse 22. It's as if Samuel is asking Saul, did you really think you could buy God's favor for your disobedience by giving some of the spoil to him? Saul, really? (laughs) Look at it. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And then Samuel utters some of the most famous words of 1 Samuel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul, you don't get to decide to take God's command and then twist it around to suit your purposes. 
you don't get to decide, Saul, to change God's command into something that you perceive as a better idea. You don't get to decide, Saul, which of God's commands are important, which ones are not. You know what Samuel did? Verse 33. He took a sword and hacked Agag to pieces. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That brings us back to chapter 16. And I think now we know why these guys are trembling. <laughs> they remember what Saul did to Agag. Anybody going to get hacked to pieces here today, <laughs> Samuel? By the way, we're also told in verse 35 of this chapter, this is the very last time in his life that Samuel will ever be in Saul's presence. But Saul is going to remain on as king for about 15 more years, and he's just going to go from bad to worse. But for now, Samuel puts the minds of these elders at ease. No one's going to be hacked to death today. Look at verse 5. And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Did you notice there what he did not say? Did you pick this up? He did not say, I've come to anoint a new king. He didn't say that. I think there's some pretty strong evidence that he kept that part secret. And by the way, also to invite them to the sacrifice was kind of like inviting them to a big meal. You may remember there were several different types of sacrifices. For example, some of the sacrifices that were offered because of sin were called whole burnt offerings. In that case, the whole animal was burnt. Nothing was left. But there were also sacrifices, for example, that were called peace offerings. And when they offered peace offering sacrifices, part of the animal was burnt, but part of the animal was eaten in a fellowship meal. They all ate together. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the very first son of Jesse, he sees, he thinks, this must be the one. <laughs> Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. <laughs> it's almost, you could almost read between the lines here and hear God saying, Samuel, what are you thinking? <laughs> don't you remember how good Saul looked? <laughs> you want to go down that road again? <laughs> I don't think so. No, Samuel, this is not the one. And then the Lord says what may be the most famous and wonderful words in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm sure you're familiar with this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, that's a wonderful verse. I, I'm, I'm sure you love the verse, and so do I. But if you think about it, it's kind of a tough verse for us. It can be pretty hard on us. Because all we've got to go on is the outward appearance. We can't look at people's hearts. God can, but we can't. <laughs> to be honest, we have a hard time knowing our own hearts, don't we? I think so. But God knows. God knows our hearts. God knows everybody's hearts. God can look into the heart. We can. He can. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that this is the truth. And, and what if we remind ourselves of that, it can help us maybe from being so shocked, now don't get me wrong, I think we ought to be grieved and disappointed with people from time to time, but sometimes we're shocked when we shouldn't be. Because what we see sometimes is an outward appearance that makes us think, 
that person's not worth much. And then we're shocked <laughs> when God does something wonderful through them, powerful through them. He does that. And sometimes we'll, what we see in terms of the outward appearance makes us think, boy, this person's destined for greatness. And then we're shocked when they disappoint us. And it's because God can see the heart. We can't. When we go to the election polls, you know, we do the best we can to vote for the candidates that we think will be most likely to stand up on godly principles the best we know how. But all we can do is look at the outward appearance. And boy, they're really fine tuning that outward appearance for us. Right. God looks at the heart. So sometimes we think somebody's going to be great and they turn into a disaster. Sometimes we think they're going to be a disaster and God uses them in ways that we didn't suspect. What do we do about that? All I know we can do is just pray. Study the issues the best we can, determine the biblical principles involved in the election when we can, listen to what the candidates say about those issues, vote for the one that we think will be most likely to stand for biblical principles. But we got to remember, only God can look at the heart. Only God can see the true intentions. All we can see is an outward appearance. We get a lot of accusations by people who think they know what's going on in people's hearts, but we just got to be really careful about that. We don't really know. We pray for discernment, and we prepare ourselves not to be devastated if we're disappointed. And we prepare ourselves not to be shocked if God does something better than we thought he would. And then, of course, whoever gets elected, we pray for them. God commands us to do that. If, they, if they're flaunting God's commands, we do what we can to point that out and, and, and do our best to hold them accountable, best we know how. And we, and we can certainly know that in God's time, he will certainly hold all of them accountable. We don't have to worry about that. But the truth is, even the person we feel like we know the best on this earth, which in most of our cases, if we're married, it's our spouse. We can't really be 100% sure that we know the heart of that person. We don't, do we? Not really. God knows the heart. Like I said earlier, we don't even know our own heart. So we do a lot of praying. We acknowledge that we don't really know what's in anybody else's heart. We acknowledge that what we think in our minds might be wrong. And ultimately, we just trust God to work everything out right in the long run. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, at this point, as far as Samuel knows, humanly speaking, these are all the sons. And by the way, I think this tells us something about the way God spoke to Samuel. Samuel didn't look at these seven young men and say, wait a minute, bring that first one back. Let's check that one again. He didn't, he didn't go by his hunches. He didn't go by his inner impressions. This was not a decision for Samuel. God's the one making the decision. God is informing Samuel what he's doing. And for each one, God's saying, no, he's not the one. Don't bother bringing him back. Don't bother trying to compare them and decide which is best. It's not him. <laughs> It's not like, well, I'm not sure about this. I don't think it's this one. No, no, no. God's revealing it very clearly to Samuel. No, this is not the one. So that led Samuel to conclude, there must be another one somewhere. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. <laughs> For Jesse who's the father of these young men, it was inconceivable that David could be the one. He's just a kid, and he's not doing anything important as far as Jesse's concerned. He's out there doing menial labor. He's a mere shepherd. If families in that day could afford servants, it was usually the servants who were out there watching the sheep, not the sons. So 
Jesse's probably not a wealthy guy, and his youngest son gets stuck with a job. <laughs> but we know, in hindsight, of course, this is beautiful. Because when the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, came to the earth, you know what he called himself? The Good Shepherd. <laughs> awesome. He is the Great Shepherd. And we know that God is in this from the beginning. God's the one who's engineered all these details. God's the one who's made sure that David had plenty of time doing the work of a shepherd. He made sure that Jesse didn't have enough money to put servants out there doing it. He wanted David doing that job. Now, what do you think God may have taught David through that time of shepherding? Have you thought about these kind of things before? Well, certainly he learned that the sheep's relationship to him was a lot like his relationship to the Lord. And you know what? Later on, led by the Spirit, David would write the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Beautiful. One of our favorites. The 100th Psalm. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Beautiful. David learned to be watchful and protective. Sheep were continuously threatened by carnivores, all kinds of carnivores. Also by the tendency to go astray. He knew about that tendency and to get into trouble. And he knew he had to keep them from going astray and getting into trouble. He learned how to defeat enemies, lions and bears and wolves that threatened the sheep. David learned how to do that while he was being a shepherd. He learned that God would defeat our enemies. He learned that just as the sheep could trust him to take care of them in their time of danger, he could trust the Lord to take care of him in time of danger. The Lord's the shepherd. He's the sheep. And he also probably figured out these sheep don't really understand a lot of what I'm doing as their shepherd. They don't get it. But they kind of figure out, I've got their best interest at heart. And in the same way, he knew that when he couldn't understand all the ways of his great shepherd, the Lord, that the Lord had David's best interest at heart and ours. We may not understand, but he, we know. As a shepherd, David undoubtedly spent a lot of time being alone with God, close to his creation. He learned a lot about God by watching his creation. And that shows up in the Psalms too. Remember this one? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can picture David lying there in the grass with his sheep looking up at the gorgeous sky that God created. David understood God speaks through his creation. He wrote Psalm 8. He said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Psalm 78, we see that he learned a lot about being a king from his experience of being a shepherd. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. He learned about being a good and wise king by being a good and wise shepherd. So, in verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, Send and get him, for we'll not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. That's interesting, isn't it, that God said that about David? We know that's not why the God chose him. But it's interesting because if you think about this, if men were making up a story, you know, after the strong emphasis he's made about God doesn't look the outward appearance like men do, it would enhance this story if it were just a man-made story, if David were kind of ugly, if they portrayed him as an ugly duckling kind of guy. But they don't. You know, they don't portray him as scrawny or wimpy. He's good looking. That's just a fact. It's not why he was chosen. He was chosen because of his heart. Now, neither Samuel nor Jesse could look on his heart, but God could. And God said, this is my guy. 
<laughs> and the Lord said, Rise, anoint him. This is he. Let me, let me say this again. It's interesting that nowhere in this passage is it announced that this anointing means that David will be the king. We kind of read that into it. Samuel knows it. The Lord revealed it to Samuel back in verse 1. But a lot of scholars, as they read through this, think, you know what? It looks like, and also from what we read later on, that at this point, only Samuel and the Lord really know what's going on here. That includes Jesse and his sons, and even David. They knew one of his sons was being selected and anointed for some special purpose, but they didn't maybe know exactly why yet. I think that really gets clear later on when we read about the actions of Jesse and his sons, the way they behave and the way they talk. Their behavior seems to make it clear. They didn't really expect David's going to be the king. So we're not sure, but maybe at this point, this is strictly between Samuel and the Lord. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Holman translation says, took control of David. New Mecca Standard says, came mightily upon David. Holy Spirit came on him from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And you know what? Other than in the genealogy, which is at the end of the book of Ruth, we looked at that a few weeks ago. And by the way, Samuel probably wrote that book as well, the book of Ruth. This is the very first time in the Bible that David is mentioned by name. But of course, it's not going to be the last. <laughs> Did you realize David's name appears in the Bible more than Abraham? More than even Moses? And you know, eventually when Jesus comes, you know what he's going to be called? Son of David. Yeah, descendant of David. David Guzik quotes F.B. Meyer as writing this, From whatever side we view the life of David, it is remarkable. It may be that Abraham excelled him in faith and Moses in the power of concentrated fellowship with God and Elijah in the fiery force of his enthusiasm. But none of these were so many sided as the richly gifted son of Jesse. He turns out to be one of the most important men in the Bible and one of the clearest types that point to our Lord Jesus Christ. So now Samuel at least knows that David will one day be king. But of course, God has not yet removed Saul. We think David was probably about 15 years old when Samuel anointed him. Actually, Josephus says he was about 10 years old, but we don't know for sure. But he's going to have to wait till he's about 30 years old before he actually becomes king. So he's got quite a few years, at least 15, of long, difficult, challenging years here before him. And God's going to teach him a lot of very powerful character lessons during these difficult years. And God is going to record many of them in his word so we can profit from them as well. And guys, this is so important. Please don't leave me here. If you ever have to live in a relationship with a very difficult person, and I know many of us at some point have that experience in our lives. We have a very difficult person to live with. And especially if that someone has authority over you. That's, that's the situation David was in. The rest of the book of 1 Samuel is a wonderful place to spend a lot of time in. Guys, take me, take me seriously here. This is really, this is so important. And God has taught me that personally in my own life. One of the most difficult periods of my life were the years when I was in my late 20s and early 30s. 
At that time, I was serving as an education pastor under a lead pastor who was very, very difficult. And there were some other circumstances in my life that were very, very painful at the time. Don't feel free to share all the details even now. But, but during those years, God led me to read and reread and re-reread <laughs> and meditate and pray over these chapters that covered David's life while Saul was still king. It seemed to me that God was saying, okay, Steve, I've given you a powerful example of how to walk with me in a very, very difficult situation. So learn from these words, learn from my book, learn from the life of David. But there's something very wonderful, sublime that happens in our hearts and souls when we're going through times of great pain and difficulty, and yet God is enabling us to keep our focus on him. That's what David did. We can learn that from David. Oh, this was very, very painful for David. There was nothing easy about it. But during this time, he wrote some of the most powerful Psalms that we have in the Bible. And I just want to read some of these to you because they're so, so powerful. Keep in mind, as I read these things, these are words that were written by David before he became king. When Saul was the king. He was David's king. He was the one in authority over David. And he was acting really, really weird. And often what Saul was trying to do was to kill him. And David was having to flee and hide. Now listen to some of the things he wrote under those circumstances. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And he said this, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In that same psalm, he also wrote this, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That powerful. 52nd Psalm. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you've done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And this, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And from the 56th Psalm, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. For when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he repeats those words just a few verses later. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In the 57th Psalm, he writes, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. 
for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And then the 59th Psalm, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. A few verses later, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The 63rd Psalm, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. A little later, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The 142nd Psalm, look to the right and see, there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, you may think I'm reading too much, (laughs) but these are just a few of the profound and powerful words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that came out of David's heart that express some of those profound and powerful and deep emotions that he's experienced during these 15 very painful, difficult years. And God made sure that these psalms, these words were recorded for us. Why? So that when we go through similar kinds of things, and we will, we can have words like these to lift us up into his presence. Wasn't it good of God to do that for us? I mean, this is so powerful. If you're not going through a difficult time right now, you may just be yawning. I don't know. But when you're going through painful times, these psalms will be extremely valuable to you. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So Saul has shown no signs of any permanent repentance. He's, he's had periods of remorse, but he's never seemed to change. And we get this feeling that instead of responding to God's conviction with humility, that he responds with irritation and self-defense. And so eventually God says, okay, Saul, have it your way. And he leaves him. God leaves Saul to himself, to his own devices. Not just a Roman one, doesn't it? It leads eventually to his destruction. Romans chapter 1, Paul said, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He says here, An evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Maybe that sounds a little strange to you. Do you think God actually sends demons to torment people? (laughs) Can you see how demonic oppression might eventually cause some people anyway to maybe wake up and realize, I need God. I'm in trouble here. They may cry out to God in genuine humility for mercy, for help. So it makes sense that maybe God does turn demons loose on people sometimes, hopefully to get their attention, to bring them to real repentance. 
I think God can use demons for his own purpose. Paul wrote something interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, talking about himself, to keep me from being too conceited. He, he, he's talking about all these visions God had given him. He said, to keep me from being too conceited or puffed up by the surpassing greatness of these revelations God had shown me, to keep me from being proud and arrogant, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And then it's interesting how he describes that. A messenger, most translations say, but the Greek word is angelos. Angelos, a messenger, an angelos from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too conceited. The word, though, in the Greek is the same as the word that's translated angel in other places. He was harassed by an angel of Satan. And it kept him humble. God used it to keep him humble. Remember what he told the, that same church in his first letter to that church at Corinth. He said, he's talking about a young man who was living in immorality with a stepmother. And Paul said, you must deliver this man to Satan. Why? He said, for the destruction of his flesh. Why? He said, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The implication being God can use the demonic powers in the dark world, Satan's own power, for God's own purpose and for our long-range good. God knows how to do that. Anyway, here we are. An evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting Saul. Verse 15, And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it and you'll be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well. Bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse. Here's God engineering circumstances again. The Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord's with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who's with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. What do you think God is communicating to us here? God sends a spirit to torment Saul because Saul has rebelled against God. But when David plays music, the evil spirit departs. Maybe God's trying to get Saul to think about something, and, and us too, and that something is worship. Do you realize that from, from the evidence we have in Scripture, Satan's primary job before he rebelled against God was to lead the angelic worship of God? It must have been something to behold. But Satan decided he wanted that worship for himself, and he rebelled and he fell. And it seems like from that time on, Satan has hated worship of the true God. He wants worship himself. Here's the bottom line. If you ever get the inkling in your head that you're being attacked by demonic powers, Remember, God has given us ways to resist these powers, Ephesians chapter 6. But I suggest that you put on the belt of truth, engage some genuine worship. What is worship anyway? Have you think, thought about that? What's worship? Worship is just proclaiming the truth about who God is, the truth about what he's done. And that first piece of armor we're supposed to put on is called the belt of truth. So the truth, the truth, the truth about God blows away the lies and deceptions that Satan tries to put on us about God. And the way we can express that truth about God is through worship. That's what worship is. 
sometimes through singing, sometimes just through speaking the words back to God. But that saying the truth about God is powerful. When David began the music, the evil spirit said, I got to get out of here. <laughs> Demons seem to be allergic to true worship. Have you ever noticed that? It has to be genuine worship, and they'll attack genuine worship. They will try to get you to think about other people instead of God when you're worshiping. But God's given us a powerful weapon here against a, a powerful enemy. We just have to make up our minds we're going to use it well. I'm going too long again, right? <laughs> of course I am. We need to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're teaching us today. Thank you for these incredible lessons we learned by studying the life of Samuel and Saul and David. And Lord, we see it's Saul and we grieve and we realize how many people are susceptible to that. Lord, we know that there, but by your grace, we would be also. But thank you that you've given us grace through our Lord Jesus Christ so that we could repent of our sin instead of excusing it and rationalizing it so that we could be saved and forgiven. Lord, we want to be a little bit more like David. We want to be people after your own heart. We want to have a sensitive spirit so when you convict us of sin, we are quick to confess it and let you forgive us and cleanse us and set us right again. So help us, Lord, to learn these lessons well. Lord, we know we're in a battle. We know we're in a war. We know we have enemies, Satan and his demons, and we know they're vicious. And we know that we're tempted to lie and we're tempted to deceive and we're tempted to sin in all kinds of ways. Would you help us when we recognize that temptation? First of all, help us, Lord, to recognize it when the temptation begins. Help us to see it quickly. And help us to turn our eyes toward you and begin to worship you in spirit and in truth. And let the power of the truth about you, what you have done and who you are, who who you are, what you're like. Let that powerful truth just drive off the enemy again and again. Thank you for the privilege and joy and honor of worship. And Lord, help us not to let Satan cheat us out of it by getting us worried too much about what people are going to say or think about us when we worship. Help us just to focus on you, forget about ourselves, forget other people and worship you well. Get glory through us that way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.